Welcome back to the Yetworth podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Emma Schmitz, and I'm here with my co-host and sibling, Maxwell Schmitz. Hello, everybody. And today we are finishing up our last podcast episode, which was about self-funding and self-insuring in the event of a disabling illness or injury that prevents you from being able to work. This is part of our series that goes through uh, the different parts of our new ebook, Planting the Seed, 20 Ways to Preserve Your Yet Worth. And you can get that at yetworth.com slash ebook. So today we are going to finish up self-funding with talking about business equity, legal settlements, and crowdfunding. So let's start with business equity. In this segment, we have a pretty awesome little infographic showing that we have a business, ABC Corp, that's been in business for 25 years and is worth $10 million. Owner A has a stroke and becomes permanently disabled. Owners B and C need to come up with the capital, 2.5 million each, to purchase owner A's share of ABC Corp. However, they don't have a disability buy-sell policy and can't come up with the cash. So, in this narrative, owner A sells to the highest bidder, which is arch nemesis conglomerate XYZ Corp. Basically, that kind of um, paints a picture of how unfortunate these situations can be for people who don't have a policy in place. They have business equity, but they don't have the money to potentially buy out an owner that can't work anymore. Right. So what comes to mind first here is just if we're getting to this point, we've already made a big mistake in the planning process, right? Because business equity oftentimes is is the asset that propels people to generational wealth. So if we're losing that business equity, um, you're already basically pulling the rug out from underneath, you know, your legacy planning and everything that you kind of worked up for to this point. So big mistake already. But generally speaking, if those who are in business with a partner or something like that, um, they are probably going to want to sell to their partners first. That would be the nice thing to do to give those partners the benefit of uh, of the doubt, so to speak, and and say, here's my, you know, here's a slice of my shares. I need the capital. You know, here's the fair price that I had in mind. Maybe you go to get a valuation. That's an additional five to ten thousand dollars probably right there. But if you're willing to part ways with that money just to get the right um, numbers in place, then maybe it's worth it. Uh, if the owners, if the other owners, the able partners are um, still uh, in business and have the capital to pull the trigger on uh, purchasing that equity. A lot of times that's not going to be the case where there's just, you know, you're looking at selling to some outside investor in many cases that's going to end up being a competitor. Uh, it's kind of a way for them to get in. And if somebody's, I mean, obviously a, a, an astute and, you know, uh, compassionate business owner who likes their partners and wants the business to succeed, it's probably not going to want to sell to a competitor. That said, desperate times call for desperate measures. And that's mm -hmm. it, the picture here that we're looking at. In this scenario is is a very viable one where you know a competitor could could get into uh, an ownership scenario here depending on what the 
what the bylaws and everything say. Maybe it requires approval from everybody else. Um, so either way, you have to the, if they do have to vote on this, these other two partners, then you're looking at a going into business with your competition and not wanting to do that or B leaving your disabled partner destitute. And you probably don't want to do that either. So you may acquiesce in that scenario. And that's kind of what we're painting here. Um, but uh, but again, if there's going to be a lot of people who are, you know, solopreneurs and they've got their their business and maybe that's worth $10 million and they can just sell that outright to, you know, some corporate conglomerate and you don't have to deal with these messy scenarios. Um, but be careful because again, if you're negotiating from a position of weakness, in this case, you know, I need the money, I need the capital, I got to sell to the best offer. Maybe that $10 million business is actually that you had on paper is going to only sell for, you know, 2 million in a desperate situation mm. or something like mm -hmm. that. So, cause you need the cash, the cash quickly. So it's just, it's stuff that you can't really plan for um, in a sense that there's no defined benefit, right? You, mm -hmm. There's no definition, there's no construct or structure supporting the dollar amount that you've got in your mind of your business valuation, because the circumstances will be a factor in that discussion. So right. it's uh, something to bear in mind if you're planning on just, oh, I'll just sell my business if I get disabled. Well, you know, first of all, you have to be mentally capable to do that. And secondly, you have to, um, you may have to go into uh, a deal with somebody that you, you, you might not want to go into a deal with. Um, or it might be, you know, maybe your employees don't want to go into a deal with those people. That's another factor. Um, so there's a lot of things to, to weigh into the conversation. And, and, you know, usually this stuff is coming out when it's far too late. And uh, right. you just want to get ahead of that stuff. And like you said, maybe the last ditch effort is to just sell. But if there are multiple owners, that's not just your decision to make. So a disability buy sell policy is probably a good idea if you have multiple owners in case something happens and you'd probably want the other owners to buy you out and they would need that insurance policy in place to do that. Big time. And one, one real world example that we're looking at right now and that we just finished processing was uh, a multi-life case for a group of architects. One of the architects, one of the 25% owners uh, contracted ALS and um, her abilities deteriorated and she's still she's still going to work everybody's rallying around her and supporting her as best as possible but it's very clear that she's not going to be pulling her weight uh, as far as you know partnership um, expectations go so they decided to implement a plan on the rest of them uh, which is wise i wish we'd got to them ahead of time on this one the other three partners are going to be well suited um, going forward and and that's part of the uh planning process. I just wish we got to them before. Yeah. And there are so many different versions of, of that scenario in real life. Moving on onto the section about legal settlements. This one's a really short section because we don't have that much to say about it other than it's not really a viable option. You know, you've seen the billboards. So first and foremost, the first fact we need to know here is that less than 5% of long-term disability claims were due to accidental injury. So that's a really small number to begin with. Even fewer are attributed to negligence, uh, which means even a smaller fraction of disabling events are eligible for a legal settlement. 
this isn't really a reliable source of income. And Not to plus, mention the split. With yeah, the exactly. It's expensive. If you're trying to go down that route, if you happen to be in that scenario, it's going to be expensive um, to split the money with your lawyer, legal team. And so your net settlement would be much lower than you probably wanted. Well said there. I'm going to jump right into the crowdfunding piece because this is the one we see constantly. I mean, I'm sure anybody listening here has seen it on social media where something happened to someone, some crazy diagnosis you've never even heard of. um, It really starts to affect a family and they can't pay for their normal living expenses. And they're in this this holding pattern before they can apply for even Social Security disability because that takes forever. We'll get to that later. Um, But the crowdfunding aspect is is it's just, it's heartbreaking because it's kind of like, you know, in the nineties, before we really had crowdfunding, it was like a bake sale. You'd have a bake sale for someone's, you know, dad who was diagnosed with cancer or something like that. Um, Just to try to get some funds to the family to cover medical bills. And that was also a big deal back then when, you know, when you didn't have comprehensive medical care, uh, Mm -hmm. medical coverage in many cases. But I mean, even now you got high deductibles all over the place. So that's something that, you know, we used to see a lot. Um, crowdfunding goals can be upwards of six figures, if not more in some cases. Um, and so, you know, everybody's seen them. They're out there. And unfortunately, 90% of these campaigns fail to meet their goals. And it's not because mm-hmm. the pain or desperation is any less, but because they just simply haven't, they weren't able to capture the hearts and minds of a viral community, because that's what it takes to get to those goals. Typically, it's not going to be like one or two donors. It's it's a, it's a massive community of people from the internet who, who, um, who are donating because your post caught fire or something like that. So um, I, I think it is kind of interesting to think of the insurance industry in general as sort of like a crowdfunding campaign. It's it's a little bit different, obviously, because what we're doing in the insurance realm is everybody's pre-funding the crowdfunding, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. pouring premium dollars into this community fund for people to use in a time of need. It sounds mm-hmm. a lot like crowdfunding, if you think about it that way. It's just yeah. those who need it, you know, there's a there's an eligibility process here uh, that is run by the claims department, typically. And they're the ones who say, you know, have the authority um, after reading the contract to to dictate, you know, who's eligible for benefits and who's not. So you have kind of like this this other party who's kind of making those calls instead of just appealing to, you know, the, the hearts and minds of, of the Internet public. Um, yeah. So. But uh, and the other key point there is that you're pre-funding it, right? And so you have access to a defined benefit as opposed to crowdfunding, which is going to be more of this, you know, nobody's pre-funding it, obviously. That would be interesting. But um, what <laughs> what is happening is, is um, you know, there's going to be uh, more of a reactive uh, situation where you have somebody who has the hardship, then mm-hmm. asks for the money. Um, and, you know, hopefully people contribute. But obviously none of those people contributing would stand to gain anything from that pool of money either. So it's just a it's kind of an interesting concept when you're thinking about insurance as a crowdfunding vehicle in the first place, because it really is very much the same. I really like to think about insurance that way as crowdfunding with foresight. We do see a lot of crowdfunding these days to fund some medical event that's happened. Not a great strategy to lean on in a time of need. But obviously, we see it all the time because people just fail to plan for for disabilities and, and um, deaths, too. Well, there you have it, folks. 
Thanks for listening to this episode that finishes up part one self-funding in our ebook. Our next episode, we will be discussing government benefits, part two, government benefits. We'll talk all about state disability, California state disability, and we'll maybe even talk about a universal basic income. What is that? Um, So catch us next time. And thanks for listening.